You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Chuck, uh, I think we should start with a debrief on your travel woes for the past <laughs> week, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And you wrote about them for the website, turned it into a lesson for everyone uh, out of your painful experience. So, uh, yeah, what happened with your, your travel last week? It was interesting, too, because as I was you know, sitting there in airports doing nothing, um, there were, you know, other of my friends on Facebook that were likewise trapped in, uh, uh in fact, uh, Sutton Hayes, um, a, a friend, uh, I'm, I'm really, I, I really like her. I adore her, but I'm really good friends with her husband, Carrie, uh, mm-hmm. out of Memphis. Um, but I've gotten to know Sutton a, a little bit too. And she was stuck in Philadelphia and it sounded like worse than my situation. Uh, so yeah, it was like a bonding thing. Yeah, I I was in Austin last week, and we had a great uh, member meetup and then uh, a a great event the next day. And I took off for the airport, uh, kind of aware that there was some stuff going on, but not really fully aware. And when I got there, the the line at the counter was enormous. It was huge. And that's usually not the the case. Not a good sign, yeah. No, and and I was, you know, this was one of those one night trips, and so I had everything in a carry on. I did not have to go check my bag, so I went right in, uh, got through security, uh, got to the gate, and it just said flight not happening. Right, like I, I don't know if it was canceled then or if it was just massively delayed, but I went and got in the long line uh, and found out that in fact I, there was not going to be a flight that day, and this all stems from. Delta in Atlanta, there was a huge storm and essentially they got their stuff backed up. They, they missed a whole day. It might've been a day and a half. They missed a lot of flights. Uh, they just couldn't fly in and out of Atlanta and everything for Delta. I mean, not everything literally, but you know, 80, I I would, I would guess like a high, maybe 70, 80% of their traffic runs through Atlanta. I'm, I'm, I go, you know, to Austin, which is directly south of Minneapolis, I run through Atlanta to get there. It's just crazy. That's their efficient model. Yeah. And so when Atlanta goes down for a day, it essentially, you know, puts all those flights back. And then, you know, they sit and try to rebook people. Well, the next day you've already got a whole bunch of scheduled flights. And so how do you rebook people? I mean, every plane you've got is already scheduled to be somewhere. Yeah. Every crew you've got that's available is already scheduled to be somewhere. And so I went to bed on Thursday night with the understanding that my flight was going to leave at six in the morning. And, you know, Delta was sending me text messages at like 1230 at night going, you know, you've been rescheduled. Your flight's at 6 a.m. Everything's on time. Got mm-hmm. to the airport at like quarter to five and nope, canceled. So I had to be home. Um I didn't like have to be home like someone would die, but part of my uh, part of my agreement, let's just say, with my family <laughs> is that you know when I travel, uh, I, I try to get home. You know, I I need to be home at, at certain for certain things. Yeah. 
And this weekend was one of those things. My daughter had a dance show competition and it was her last one of the year. And, uh, we had mm-hmm. to drive four hours to get there. So I had to be like home and be dad and, and husband. And, uh, so I'm sitting in the airport at five in the morning going, I'm, I'm not, there's no way. And, and looking at things, realizing that, you know, Delta was saying, not only do we not have flights for you, but we don't have crews for the planes and we don't have like mechanics and, and people in place because, you know, they've all gotten set back because of this delay. And when we get them to where they're going, we were mandated to give them a certain amount of break time. Uh, so yeah. we can't even use them then anyway. And you, you could just see this like cascade of failures emanating out from this one set of delays. And so I, I rented a car, drove to Dallas and got on an American flight and got home, uh, oh which, which worked, but you know, cost me a lot of money, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's a deal. But you, you, I realized over the weekend that what Delta had to do was essentially, and they couldn't come out and say this, but they essentially wrote off like a, a day of people. They basically had to say like, look, um, our business model doesn't allow for us to catch up, you know, to miss a whole day. Yeah. Um, on that level. Yeah. It do, there's, there's no way for us to make it up. So we just have to do like a control alt delete and just like start over, you know, yeah. uh, where we're at and pretend like none of this happened. There's a, there's a, um, there's a book, uh, who's my brain is leaving me now. Who's the guy who wrote all the Jack Ryan books? The, um, it's so ridiculous because I've read every one of them. There's Tom Clancy. What am I thinking? Okay. Okay. Tom Clancy. There's a Tom Clancy book where, um, part of the plot, and I can't remember if it's China or Japan, but one of the two, the book starts with this attack on the stock market. And they like, you know, pull all their money out and sink the market and all this. And the way they ultimately resolve it in the end, I mean, there's a war and all this stuff that goes on too. So it's, it's very clancy, but the way they resolve the stock market thing is they just do a do over. They basically say, okay, we're going to pretend that day never happened. And then we're just going to pick up today as if like none of that stuff took place. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what Delta airlines has had to do. They've had to say like, look, uh, you know, this didn't, we, we did, this didn't work. We can't go back and fix it. There's nothing we can do. And so let's just pretend that that day never existed. And all you people kind of fend for yourselves or figure it out. Um, but we're just going to have to continue on. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're never going to catch up. Like, like we will not have an airline. So it will not work. So, so then you drew this comparison with how cities are built in the article that you published today and talked about how this model that's focused on efficiency um, might work, although in this case it didn't really work, um, for a private company like Delta Airlines. But for a city to focus on efficiency, they could fail on the level that Delta just failed. And that would have much more serious consequences than people having flights delayed and things like that. Yeah. We, we have this, you know, it's Holy week this week. And uh, I was thinking about this mm-hmm. over the weekend. I'm like, you know, our secular religion, our like national religion is efficiency. I mean, it's one of our, you know, it's growth, growth and efficiency. That's what we worship. And there's this odd article. I said, it was really odd. It's a very odd article in the uh, New York times this weekend uh, about main streets. 
And I, I think the guy was trying to like bash Trump people in a way, like intelligent way. It was, it was just kind of silly because it basically said, you know, main streets, we like to nostalgize them, but they're silly. Like they don't work. They're in, he kept talking about how they're inefficient and, mm-hmm. you know, because they're inefficient, things cost more and people don't like them. And it, it, it's, it's bizarre to me because the, you know, efficiency is one metric. It's one like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one way to measure things. But when you have a system like the Delta airline thing, that's hyper efficient, you know, we have all these flights going to one spot. We've got our crews efficient. We've got our schedules efficient where we've got our flights overbooked because we know the percentage of people that don't make the flight and we're maximizing that. I mean, everything is like stretched as tight as possible to, to maximize uh, where they're at. It's hyper, hyper efficient. What you lose is you lose all redundancy. You lose all slack in the system. So something goes wrong and like everything falls apart. There's no way to recover from that. And w- when we look at Main Street, you know, as compared to like, let's say the, the big box frontage road model. Yeah, the big box frontage road model is in an economist viewpoint, really, really efficient. We can get goods made in China at the lowest possible price, ship them here uh, in an efficient way, have a highway and transport system that's very efficient. I, I posted uh, last week, you know, this uh, semi tractor trailer that was delivering like a dozen boxes of stuff to the local Dairy Queen. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of my friends, I got one friend who drives truck and he's like, Chuck, you don't understand. It's way more efficient because this guy is going to the next Dairy Queen and then the next Dairy Queen and then the next Dairy Queen and they can get all these deliveries out. And, you know, if you, if, if you look at efficiency in that way, yes, it, it's, it's, it's incredibly efficient. But what happens when that big box store fails? You know, what, what happens when now we see these retailers like having a bad quarter and closing hundreds of stores around the country. You know, it's not like these buildings are adaptable. It's not like this development pattern is, uh, you know, flexible and resilient. It it either is a Walmart or it is nothing. Mm -hmm. And when you look at main street, uh, yes, it is less hyper efficient in, in the sense that, you know, we've, we've capitalized on efficiency in, in, you know, the dimension of transport or what have you. Um, but it's more resilient and more adaptable and has more redundancies in it. If one business goes down, it's a pretty flexible building. It can become many different things. Uh, you know, if, if <laughs> you, you look at the efficiencies of, of that development pattern and they're in a, like a different dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not in the ones that economists would, would detail. So right. yeah, I, I'm, I, I look at Delta and I say, okay, if Delta fails, if Delta has these problems, what happens? People like me get inconvenienced. It costs us more money. Um, maybe Delta has to, uh, you know, apologize and give us free tickets at some point in, in a worst case scenario, like with the banking crisis in 2008, when there, you get hyper efficiency like that, uh, banks fail. You know, like things, things go really bad. Um, if, if, if a government fails, you know, if governments worry about being efficient and try to tighten everything up and get rid of all the slack and have no redundancies, if governments fail, then, then things just go bad. I mean, it, it's, I, in the article I talked about just misery, you know, you just, you spread misery. 
And, and so you know, we often hear about I step back and I look and I say, we have one political mindset in this country that says government should be run like a business, mm-hmm. which means, you know, if you can borrow $10 and, and make an investment, then do it. If you can, uh, you know, get by with two employees instead of uh, three, then do it. And, you know, if we can build two miles of pipe instead of one, the net unit cost will be less for the two. So build the two instead of the one. These are... Um, you know, mindsets of a business, but governments are not businesses. They, they can't fail. Failure is not an option. And so they really need to be incredibly risk averse. And that means at the end of the day, not efficient. They have to actually have redundancy, have spare parts, have the ability to, uh, in times of stress, adapt. And it's just not the way we think about government, and we really should. I think it was especially interesting to see delta airlines be failing on this level because delta is i mean i don't know how many awards they've won or whatever but it seems like they're always ranked as like the best most successful airline in the world and so the fact that if that big company that has you know figured out so many things and has really cornered the market in many ways can still fail then really anything can fail but understand what you're what you're saying what you're looking at though too because Delta is, I mean, Delta is, I think, the best airlines out there. Um, yeah. They, they do, they are on time. They're very reliable. They do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very high, high level of service at a very reasonable cost. They're hyper-efficient. But what you give up with that hyper-efficiency is the ability to adapt. You know, nature is not efficient. I mean, th- this, is the, this is the thing that I think we, uh, you know, we misunderstand often. Nature is just not efficient. It, it, you know, you, you look out and what you don't see in nature is like one huge tree or, or, you know, one huge animal dominating everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, what you see is this whole kind of ecosystem of moderate, uh, and small with a few big, um, but nothing that is overly dominant. You know, Nassim Taleb once said, you know, you could go out into nature and shoot and kill the, the biggest animal out there. And, you know, not, not, not that you should do this, but you could. You go out and shoot, you know, a, a whale, right? Like the biggest creature in the world. And you wouldn't take down nature, uh-huh. right? It's resilient and adaptable. Something else will take its place. It's not dependent on like one big thing. Uh, but you go out and you shoot Delta Airlines, <laughs> you know, take it down with a big storm. And, uh, you know, our national transportation system goes into convulsions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, you know, that, that is um, a, a hyper-efficient, very fragile system. And I, I think this is just a good learning opportunity for people to realize that the trade-off with efficiency is fragility. And we don't want our cities to be fragile. And so we don't want our cities to be hyper-efficient. And, and that's just not a mindset that many Americans have. Along those same lines, um, last week we republished an article from Steve Mozan's um, website about, well, it was called How Fire Chiefs and Traffic Engineers Make Places Less Safe, uh, an eye-catching headline for sure. And you're the one who actually showed this to me and said, we should try to republish this. And Steve was right. very willing to do that. I think there's a lot of connections um, with that with that article that we ran last week that turned out to be the most 
popular article on our site last week um, in terms of the ways that we design all of our streets to be um, to maximum efficiency for our fire trucks and emergency vehicles to travel quickly um, to you know the scene of a crash or an emergency, which as we've pointed out with a meme that we created a couple years ago, uh, it's ironic that our streets are designed so that people can quickly arrive at an emergency that was created by our poorly designed wide streets. <laughs> right, right. It's, it is, I, I think it's, it's along the same lines, right? We are uh, trying to be very efficient by having one fire department centralized with big equipment and big gear and, you know, all the, uh, all the bells and whistles. And then you know, because of that, uh, we have to have it respond uh, you know, we have to have these wide streets so that they can get places very, very quickly. And yeah, what you wind up doing is creating the, the tax base and the underlying system that we live in becomes very, very fragile. Um, this is thinking like in, in one dimension of efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because Dallas last week had, um, it, at, it, did you hear about the sirens that went off in Dallas? Someone I don't think so. Someone hacked into uh, the Dallas emergency response system oh. and set off all the sirens. Uh, not all, you know, I, I don't think it was like everyone, but it was hundreds of sirens. So at like midnight, um, all these sirens started going off, and people started huh. you know calling nine one one like what's going on, and you know they flooded nine one one, so regular nine one one calls couldn't get through. Yeah, and you know it was just basically like a hacker went in and turned all these things on to create mayhem. Yeah. And, and you realize like, okay, uh, emergency management response system, we've made it really efficient. We've, you know, have fewer people now working in a bigger call center. Uh, we've got automated systems. We've got them all centralized and, uh, you know, it's a lot better than, you know, uh, the, the local cop going door to door warning people that, Hey, you know, there's a tornado half an hour away. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's way more efficient, right? But it's also really fragile because the system can be hacked when it goes down. Like nobody gets emergency response calls. Um, you know, th- there's a, there's a trade off there, and I think so often our mindset is to be willing to make that trade off. Let's let's go down to one fire hall and have it be really big with all this equipment, and then we can go from you know, 30 firefighters down to 25 and we can, you know, afford more stuff and, uh, that will be great. But then, okay. The response to that is you've got to spend millions, uh, widening out your streets. That's going to degrade your tax base. It's going to make your city less safe and, uh, kill more people. So, you know, you, you look and say, well, the problem, you could look at the policy and say, well, the problem is we shouldn't be narrowing our streets and, you know, we, or we shouldn't be making our streets wide and, you can go down that rabbit hole a long time, but the mindset behind it is that we're striving for an efficiency when really government is not or should not be about efficiency as much as it should be about uh, redundancy and resiliency. Yeah, I definitely recommend taking a look at that article um, if you didn't see it last week. Uh, Steve is pretty um, blunt in his arguments, but he makes some really solid points there. Well, I, I was in, I mean, the funny thing is, is that when that whole controversy came up around Celebration Florida, yeah, um, I had been there the week before. I, it's, it's one of my, 
you know, it's one of my favorite cities. Places. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, I mean, I've said I would move there in a heartbeat. And I know like a lot of people think it's Truman Show-esque. Uh, and it is. Um, I'm not one of these who like, you know, wants gritty urbanism. Uh, you know, I, I know some people find that to be very authentic and real. Uh, I, I kind of like things to just look pretty and be nice. And, uh, you know, celebration is that it is very well kept. It's very nice. It's very idyllic in many ways. And I've just always enjoyed it. The idea that you're going to go in and rip down the trees because now, you know, 25 years into this thing where they haven't had emergency response problems, they haven't had people dying. They, they actually have lower rates of pedestrian incidents, even though they have far more walkers because mm -hmm. the cars are driving slow. I mean, you've got 25 years of data you can study and see like this works really, really well. Um, but no, we have, you know, this efficiency standard that we've got to meet. And it's being applied in a rote way. And uh, so all the trees have to come down. And it, it's just asinine. You, you look and you say, we, we are just kind of dumb people sometimes. Like, why would we do such a dumb thing? You know, celebration should be a place. And, and really, back when I ran my own uh, planning firm back in the, to the early 2000s, I took my office once there. And uh, among other places in Central Florida, but I took them there because I, I wanted them to see, because there really wasn't any good examples around here. I wanted them to see some of the design things that had gone into making this place. I, I think that this is a place where firefighting, uh, you know, fire chiefs around the country should go uh, along with design people from around the country uh, to see what is possible. Like this actually works. Uh, you know, so all those hangups you have about having wide streets and wide curve radiuses and all that, it, 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 it's not necessary. Like, look, here's another alternative. And here's actually the data now that shows this works. Let, let's start introducing some of these principles in our city. Right. Switching gears for a minute. I want to mention that the, um, event action continues for the foreseeable future. Uh, Chuck is going to Mount Pleasant, Michigan later this week and doing some walking tours and a public curbside chat in the evening, as well as, um, some events like private events with local leaders, um, some meetings and things like that. You got a lot Have of you stuff ever been to Mount Pleasant, Michigan. No, I have not. Me so either. this will be a new thing. I'm actually, I, I think, I, I think on the calendar this year, there's like four trips to Michigan. Um, yeah. So and I'm, we're going to be adding another one when you uh, head to the winner of our curbside. Chat. Yeah, no, or, five to Traverse City. Contest. Exactly. Yep. So, uh, you know, it's a good year for Michigan. Uh, what have you been reading or listening to lately? You know, you would think that being stuck in an airport is yeah. like a time to um, to read and to get caught up on things and maybe do your – I did a little bit of that. Um, but what, what happens when you get travel delays like that is you you really get worn down. I mean I got yeah. like I got like three hours of – you know, when you travel, you don't get a lot of sleep anyway. Um, and then I got like three hours of sleep – um, you know, the, the night before I, the, the one I was stranded overnight and yeah, it was, um, so I, I actually wound up going back to, um, one of my, one of Dan Carlin's old hardcore history podcast, the one on world war one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, was listening to that for like the 10th time. 
just because it's it's soothing in a way. Um, I mentioned, you know, this is Holy Week. Every year during this week, I actually there's a book by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan called The Last Week. Oh and yeah, I've seen that. I, yeah, I really enjoy it, and I read it this week. Um, each chapter goes through a day um, from the Gospel of Mark into what goes, what, you know, what happened during this week, and then they, of course, you know, analyze it and talk about it and, and explain why. Yesterday was Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. and you know, they talk about it as a as a political protest, which is really, um, I think, a compelling way to look at it. And so they, you know, this week it kind of prepares you for the the weekend, and I just that's what I dug into yesterday and spent some time with, and probably will the rest of this week. Nice. I I did go back to that Moral Tribes book though. We yeah. talked about it last week. I'm into it now, so uh, okay. so I set it aside, um, but uh, I'm going to dig into it again next week because I I enjoyed it. Um, okay. There's another one that I started to uh, called Thank You for Your Service. And it follows these families who um, either soldiers or widows of soldiers uh, from the recent uh, Gulf War. And, you know, their their problems with depression and suicide and, and, you know, all this. And it's just... My wife's done a lot of reporting on this topic and she mm-hmm. recommended the book and I'm, I'm like halfway through it and I think I got to quit it. It's just, it's just tough. It's just rough and yeah. rough in a way that is just kind of, I don't know. It's raw for me. I, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with it. It's a, it's a hard topic. Um, and I don't mean rough as in like it's unreadable cause it's really well done. Um, but just hard. It's hard to, it's, Depression is one of these things where it's it's hard to watch because you're you know you're powerless. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the uh, that's the part of the book that I'm struggling with. It's just hard. Well, before we close, I want to welcome our newest members of Strong Towns this week. We had several that joined us: um, Glenn Blackwood of Indianapolis, Indiana; Chris Bowman of St. Louis, Missouri; Ariana Durr of Pryor, Oklahoma. Larry Gunther of Davis, California, Eric Hammer of Cheyenne, Wyoming, Karen Hudson of Lexington, Kentucky, Joseph Kurtz of Brooklyn, New York, Marcy McAnelly of Portland, Oregon, and Grace Smith of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. And a special thank you to those new members who joined us um, as a result of their participation in the Strong Town Summit. Um, it's really heartening and amazing to see that uh, the summit inspired people to, you know, want to continue being connected to strong towns and decide to support us um, on that level of becoming a member. So I'm I actually be doing got... a debrief uh, as a staff about the summit a little bit later and talking about some of the um, like responses to a survey that we gave everyone who participated in the event. And I got to say, I don't want to brag, but I feel pretty good about the responses so far. Um, people have been surprisingly positive and complimentary about this event. So I'm so glad we were able to pull that off. I got an email from one of our new members and I'm not going to, I won't say their name cause I didn't get permission to, mm-hmm. um, but they wrote and, and said like, here's why I became a member. Okay. And um, let me, let me just read this one. They said, what pushed me to do it was seeing a reference to your work on a social media thread. Uh, just when it was about to go really negatively NIMBY, 
my city's going through a lot of growing pains. And when I see people engaged in difficult conversations who are better informed, I am thankful. This person was better informed because of strong towns and was able to shift the conversation. So, you know, I just, I thought that was so nice. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly what we're hoping to do. Yeah. I mean, she said, I appreciate the positive influence. Uh, I've been very active here for decades. And, uh, you know, your, uh, your, uh, your work has helped us to change our conversation. So, yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you to that person and thank you to all our members. And if you're interested in learning more about membership and uh, supporting the work of Strong Towns like this podcast, please visit strongtowns.org slash membership. All right. So well, you wrote, yes. hang on a sec. You wrote last week about uh, this woman, Dana Dunbar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a cool story, too. Well, talk a little bit about that, because I saw that as I was um, heading back. I saw that like, um, you know, ticking up the uh, the chart beat uh, as one that people were reading. Nice. Um, I know this is an article that uh, you know, we we got from some some other work, but. It was a compelling yes. one. Talk a little Street bit about blog. it. Streets blog ran uh, an article um, last week about, it was called How a Toledo Mom Stopped a Destructive Road Widening. Um, and she's not only a mom, but also a small business owner um, and a longtime resident of this neighborhood in Toledo or just outside Toledo. And basically, it was just an article about how, you know, she didn't have any background in engineering or community organizing even, but she just uh, did did some research and learning in places like Streets Blog, City Lab, and Strong Towns. Thanks for the shout out there. Uh, as well as from uh, Jeff Speck's work. And um, when her neighborhood had proposed to widen the road, uh, she, based on her research, concluded that this was probably not a good thing for their community and rallied her neighbors in a, in a couple of different efforts and was just really persistent showing up at community meetings and things like that. And uh, eventually convinced the city council to vote against the road widening. Um, and now their next step that they're pushing for is trying to actually get the road narrowed. Um, so we wish them luck on that, but okay. yeah, we're, we're, it's honor. It's an honor to be listed among inspirations for things like that and resources for people who are trying to do things like that. And we hope that there are many other Dana Dunbar's out there and I'm sure there are. Yeah. Um, Nice job too, getting the uh, the mayor's podcast up last week. I know people listening to this probably had an opportunity to to listen to that one as well. And I ju- I was just really um, I was just very proud that we were able to hold an event that not only drew you know the the, the people that it did, but also you know we we called these two mayors and said like, would you be willing to do this? And mm-hmm. immediately they said yes. Uh, we'd love to be part of that conversation. And it was just very, uh, very humbling, you know, and I think a, a great demonstration of, uh, you know, what we've been able to do here across ideological, you know, spectrum uh, to uh, to have this conversation. So thanks for getting that up for people. Yeah. And I know that Max has stripped in, kind of edited down some of the audio from the live streams that we did at the summit. So I'm, I'm going to hopefully have some time at some point in the next few weeks to review that and see if some of that might make a good podcast as well for people who weren't at the summit and can still hear some of the awesome speakers and workshops and things like that. Perfect. Thanks, Rachel. Yep. We need your help. 
If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.